Probably have your own. No, I thought we had a fill-in speaker. Look, you have your own sword. Just in case you're wondering and hadn't figured it out yet, Linus, the example of a man or a boy sincerely wrong, uh, convinced of his truth, convinced so much that uh, he was willing to try to convert everybody to it. Right? But at the end of it all, uh, wrong. Um, perhaps throughout this, uh, this series you didn't know or hadn't thought of the fact that there were so many different ways that a person could be wrong even though they, they really, really and truly mean it. Uh, our final topic is going to be one that kind of mixes some of the previous elements. Um, talking about insufficient information or bias and dogma, some of these different ideas. Um, and uh, we've had an extra week on the, the marquee to think about it. And so maybe you've thought about John and say, wait a minute. Okay, uh, some of the others I can kind of get, but when was John ever sincerely wrong? I mean, I know John wasn't a perfect man, but where in the Bible was he sincerely wrong? Well, the problem is, is that we're not talking about the Apostle John. In fact, we're not even talking about John the Baptist. We're talking about a different John that's not in the Bible. And then you're thinking, possibly, how in the world do you come up with a sermon about a guy that's not in the Bible? That's kind of a... We're going to get there, but uh, we're, we're using the example of a, a person who ends up affecting something that we see in the Scriptures later on when Christ comes. A man who uh, lived before Christ... Uh, let me see here. Let me get this going here. Uh, a man by the name of John Hyrcanus. Everybody heard of John Hyrcanus? Um, he was one of the, the Maccabees, uh, and, and he lived about 164 to 104 years before Christ. And uh, his family led a revolt against the Greeks. Um, they had been... Uh, persecuted by, by a number of them, not all of them, but, but, uh, but many of the Greek rulers had persecuted uh, the, the Jews. And so Judas Maccabeus was the first to lead a revolt. They retook the temple. They purified it. That's where we get Hanukkah from. Uh, and, and so, uh, so John ends up in, in the course of time uh, in this lineage becoming a general um, and, and with some mixed results. Uh, now, his administration is the one that really saw the transition from Greek authority to Roman authority. It's kind of, it was a process, but, but his kind of is this administration that saw the difference. And, and, and he was kind of one of those that, that wanted to form alliances with Rome to, to try to break off from Greece. And I know that you think, based on what we know and all the, the stuff about Rome, we think, well, that wasn't a great idea. But, but trust me, it was at least in the short term, it was a good idea. Uh, Greek, the, the Greek... Uh, administration over, over them was far more severe than, than Rome was until 70 AD. Uh, they might have forgot that in time, but, but, but it was. And, and so he began, as I said, with mixed results. 
uh, he began a little unsuccessfully and, and unpopularly. And this is all, we're going to get into the development of something and, and over a couple hundred years that, that God and, and Christ have to address. And this is why this is important. He, um, there, he led a protracted rebellion also uh, against, uh, against Greek, uh, Greece and, uh, and wasn't 100% successful in it. Uh, and so, unfortunately for, for the Jews, they were forced to sign a truce. So it was a one-sided truce. It was a truce that said, much like previously, we're going to annihilate you or we're going to attempt to annihilate you if you do not go along with this truce. And so uh, it had a couple of demands. First of all, they were going to have to pay 3,000 talents of silver. Now, where do you get the 3,000 talents of silver? Not a whole lot of money at that point. Uh, so he raided the tomb of David. That's not going to make you popular in, in Palestine, uh, to raid the tomb of David. Uh, but he did so, uh, because that was his only option. That was the only source of money. So they sold off some stuff and, and, and gave, it to, uh, to, gave it to Greece. But the other was that they had to help in a, in a war. Um, uh, so uh, they were... Greece, and when we say Greece, Greece was divided into four parts. It wasn't actually Athens per, per se. Uh, the Greek Empire that specifically were the part of the Greek Empire was, was the part in, in Syria that he was forced to, to, uh, to help. And they were having a war with, the, with this group called the Parthians. And Parthians would be people that live in northern Iran, uh, if we were looking at it today. So they had to go and help them. Well... Um, that, that uh, guy, guy by the name of Antiochus VII uh, was killed uh, while there. So, so that kind of gave him an opportunity to, to start to, to shift. And, and, and things got going. And he used that weakness to, to break free. And this is where kind of that, that room comes into to play. But it's in all of this that uh, we're going to see an error and, and these are the events, these aren't the error the themselves, but it's in this that we're going to talk about the development of a philosophy. Um, this is a, uh, uh, we're going to look at how he begins with zeal, his, his passion for things. That, that is good to have zeal. It's a, it's a great Bible characteristic, isn't it? Uh, sometimes things get misguided in zeal, right, uh, and, and in our passion. Um, this is a coin of his. Why a coin? Um, because this is an interesting thing. Now, I'm not an expert on coins, and, and I could, I, but I can tell you that they're minting. Um, could, they could have done some quality control there. Uh, but but that, beyond that, I, I, don't, I don't read this transcript um, and what this means, but there are two things about this coin that are interesting that actually reveal the zeal uh, in person of John Hyrcanus. First of all, the inscription, I'm told, I don't read it, um, looks like um, Woodstock, speaking of the peanuts there, uh, Woodstock was writing that, as far as I can tell, but it says that he's the high priest. So he wasn't a king. He was a high priest. And that's kind of important because we're going to see that, that a lot of his zeal for things comes from his relationship with, uh, with the law. Now, he's kind of a throwback. He's kind of like goes back to the time where the, the priests and, and various ones were kind of the military leaders. Uh, kind of, that's like way old stuff, right? Uh, 
But, but this other thing here uh, on, the, on the flip side of that is interesting uh, because we don't have any... That, that picture that I showed you of, of John Hyrcanus is actually a, a piece of artwork from the 1500s. Uh, old, but it, we have no idea how accurate it is. Probably had a beard. That's about all we know. Uh, but his coins show no pictures of himself because... As a, as a high priest, he understood the idea of no graven images. Don't, don't do that. that, that God's not really happy with that kind of thing. So, so, so even his coins didn't have a picture of himself. Now, his son won't really care too much about that, and he'll have pictures of himself. But, but he thought, this is pretty serious business. He had this passion for the law and, and being literal with the law. Uh, in fact... Um, <clears throat> he lost a battle with that, with that Greek thing because oh, on that particular battle uh, they were marching and they had to stop and so they wouldn't do battle on the Sabbath. Well, they got annihilated. <laughs> That's the, that was, what? But the Sabbath, he thought, he thought, listen, if we obey God's law, we'll be rewarded. Well, God said, well, not this time. You know? uh, maybe God was done. With, with helping the Jews at this point, it's like, listen, the next help you're getting is in about a hundred and some odd years. <laughs> That's when you're getting help, when Christ comes. You're on your own until then. I don't know. But he was, he was zealous for the law. And, and so he, he said, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not fighting today. He destroys a temple in Samaria. Why did he destroy it? a temple in Samaria. Well, because of zealousness for the law. Remember the story of, of Jeroboam? Jeroboam had been, uh, God was upset with Rehoboam. And God sent a prophet to Jeroboam and says, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you ten tribes. They're yours. Just try to do good with them. Well, that lasted about five minutes. And uh, Jeroboam says, appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like a feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So, he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made and placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And so uh, Jeroboam had had this idea that, um, you know what, I've got these ten tribes, but they have to go back to Jerusalem to go visit that temple. And they're going to go back there and they're going to miss it. And they're going to go back there. And so he tried to come up with his logic to retain and, and force this prophecy to come true. And, uh, and, and so God says, well, that's not going to do so hot for you. Um, and, and so, so in, in his administration as a high priest, he's like, listen, these foreign temples, we can't have them. And this is the same place now, up in, up in Samaria, up, up north. He's like, we've got to get rid of these temples. Can't have that. Uh, and so he destroys a temple in Samaria. So, so we see his zeal, and, and I don't really necessarily see anything here that's wrong so far, do we? I don't see anything here where I would say he is factually incorrect. We get started with zeal, and we, we, can, we can be sincere, and, and we can even start correctly, and we're going to see this development of his philosophy, just the roots of it, and it's going to get to a point where we see some errors down the road. Uh, <clears throat> oh, by the way, one more little thing he did in his zeal is we're transitioning to the error. He, he went down. Now, now Judaism is not really an a evangelistic 
religion, so we've always thought. But he went down to Idumea. Idumea is the, the area of Palestine that's really not in what we would call Palestine. It's kind of no man's land. It's in the south, in the southeast of Jerusalem a ways, uh, almost getting down towards that Sinai Peninsula. And um, he forces the conversion of those people there. By the way, those are, uh, among those people are people by the name of Herod. And they were not originally Jews. This is going to change history now, isn't it? It's going to have a little effect on things. He forced their conversion. And so they will identify as Jews later. And so here's this transition where he's starting to become more extreme in what he believes. Well, um, did a couple of things as a high priest. He made some executive decisions, which we, we go, well, okay, I can see where you were sincerely correct before, and I can see where you're sincere now, but not correct. He um, recalled confirming an oath that was in Deuteronomy 26. It says this, he says, When you have finished paying all the tithes of your produce in the third year, which is in the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you will say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, and the fatherless, the widow, according to your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. So every three years, you had to come. Uh, I don't know if you had to do this at the temple or just in front of somebody at the synagogue just to make sure that you did this. And you had to make this oath that you had paid your tithes. Imagine we did that. <laughs> we talk about the free will offering. Imagine every three years you have to come here and say, I have given 10%. I have donated it for this purpose. Da, 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 da. Right? Imagine that. They had to. And um, so he said, we're not going to take the oath anymore. Not, he didn't stop the tithes or anything. He just said, we're not going to follow this particular protocol of saying it. Now, here's his logic. After Babylon, when they came back, a good portion of the Levites didn't come back. A lot of them stayed in, in Persia, actually not in Babylon, but they stayed in Persia, which conquered Babylon. So he said, we can't rightly take a vow that we're lying. <laughs> to say that I've paid the Levites, they're not here. I haven't paid the Levites. They have some priests and stuff, but, but most of them haven't come back. So, so we'll still pay the tithes, but we're just not going to lie to God when we make this oath. Okay, that, I can see his sincerity. But we see now he's starting down this, this path of changing... <coughs> Scriptural protocols out of logic. Now this gets important because now he does something that he's not removing anything from the Bible. We, we need to understand, we'll give him some credit. However, he removes the reading of Psalms 44. Now he didn't take it out of the Bible, out of the Hebrew Old Testament, whatever. He just said, in our synagogues we're not going to read Psalm 44 anymore. And it was because there's two verses here. In these two verses, verse 22 and 23, says, Yet for your sake, this is talking, David talking to God, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. It was like we're, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Wake up! Why are you sleeping, God? 
Get up. Don't reject us forever. She said, you know, that's kind of a little disrespectful to God. Right? If I said that to God, would you consider that disrespectful? I mean, not in a sermon, you know, because I'm reading verses. But if I just, if you just, you know, came by and I was, I was in my garage and I was talking to God, me and God were talking, and I was sounding you like, oh, would you please? Right? And that's the way he thought. Like, so it's still there, but we're just not going to read it because it sounds disrespectful to me. And so, again, this zeal, this passion for God as a high priest, a passion to want to be respectful for God, and all the zeal that he has, he's starting to change scriptural protocols. And now, now we have a verse that we can't read, Right? You ever see people in their zeal that say, well, well, uh, I, I really believe this thing and, and, and they really have problems with certain verses because it seems to go against the way they look at things. And, like, eh. and when, the, when a particular topic comes up, they'll never turn to that verse. Because it seems to conflict with their philosophy. Then there's something wrong with your philosophy. That's, that's the real point. He's, he's got a problem in his philosophy. And so it's becoming more and more extreme. And so we're going to look at his turning point. A, there comes a point at which he turns. Now, I don't know why he does this, but he removes the Sanhedrin's power. I don't know if that was out of his zeal, where he said, I don't see the Bible saying anything about the Sanhedrin and them having power, or I don't know if this was just a political move. The Sanhedrin apparently get their power back because when Jesus writes, he says, listen, if one of you says fool and, and he, you know, you're in danger of the council, that's the Sanhedrin. So apparently they got their power back at some point in time. But I can tell you who that didn't make happy. A group called the Pharisees. Pharisees kind of ran the show religiously. They were the big group of interpreters of the scripture at this point in time. Well, even when Christ was here, they were probably the, the majority. And, uh, and so they, uh, they said, well, we're not going to take this sitting down. And so he was accused of being illegitimate. Now, here's their rationale. The Pharisees had a rationale for this. Um, one of the things that happened frequently uh, with, at this point in time with the Maccabees is that they were fighting on all fronts. They were fighting with Syrians, but they were also fighting with the, the part of the Greek Empire that was down in Egypt, the Ptolemies, right? And Cleopatra and all those, right? So, so, uh, uh, so he was fighting with... Uh, Cleopatra comes just a little bit later, but, but that, that group... And uh, so his mother had been captured. That happened, actually, it seems, happened, according to Josephus, rather frequently. And, and, and women were treated uh, to try to gain leverage, hold them for ransom or whatever. And so the Pharisees theorized that it was during one of these periods that his mother got pregnant, you fill in the blanks, and that he was actually not the son of his father, he was the son of a Ptolemy, and therefore he was illegitimate. 
and therefore not capable to be the high priest because he wasn't of the right descendant. That, now, this is all an accusation. Where did the accusation come from? Their hatred for a decision. They had no problem with him, and this was not a theory up until he said, we're going to remove the power of the Sanhedrin. Now, also remember that there's strict laws in the Old Testament about uh, judicial protocols and, and how many witnesses and the ability to, to prove your theory. Uh, without the ability to prove the theory, there was no basis for them to, to determine that he was illegitimate and therefore couldn't be high priest. And so he starts thinking, these people just make it up whenever they feel like. Is he right? Yes. There's something that happens when we kind of involve ourselves in it. Though We start to cement ourselves. And, and, and in our zeal and passion, we, we cement where we're at. This is where I'm at. Right? We're developing our philosophies. Um, so he embraces a philosophy. Right here. This is, this is the period when you can pinpoint where he becomes something. And he says, I'm done with Pharisees. There's a small little group. They existed before him. But, but there's a small group of people that disagree with the Pharisees. These people kind of thought themselves better. They, they thought themselves to be the party of the priest. He's a priest, so they kind of have some things in common. Uh, and they, uh, they kind of named themselves after a guy by the name of Zadok, who was the high priest when... Solomon was the king. And, and so they, they kind of, you pick a name of somebody that you think is important and, and we want to uphold the virtues of this person. We're, so we're going to name ourselves. This happened with, in 1 Corinthians, one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, right? And we've talked about that. Ah, we're, we, we pick a person and we, we call ourselves after them. Right? I'm the, the, the Lutheran church, the, this church, the Wesleyan church. We pick a person and we go, oh, we want to be like this guy. We just, that's, Human tendency. So they called themselves the Zadokites. And they didn't like the Pharisees. And they said, you guys, you guys just make it up. We're going to be literal interpreters of the Bible. And, and, and we're not going to just rely on tradition. In fact, uh, we don't believe in oral tradition anymore. Right, And that's his philosophy, and he finds a group that believes in this philosophy. We don't believe in oral tradition. What did we, we read last week about a, this, uh, these Pharisees, and, and, and we, we mentioned that we were going to talk about them this week. And, and how Jesus put, pinpointed them, and he said, you guys violate the law by your oral traditions. Right? He wasn't he was talking specifically to the Pharisees because of their oral tradition. They developed all these opinions, on, built, which were built on opinions and built on opinions, and they get to a wrong point. This group of Zadokites did not do that. You will not ever find in the New Testament them being criticized for that. They'll be, uh, like, they weren't like that. Who is this group? So we're looking at the result of philosophy. I want to talk about the result of Philosophy. Because this group of people, they were purists. Do you know any purists? 
Oh, I'm a purist. I like things the way they should be. Go back to the original. Right? We talk about that all the time. We develop a philosophy. And everybody has a philosophy. This is my philosophy on this. Ask somebody, they'll tell you their philosophy. But the first problem is that philosophies tend to become religions. Because we hold it and we don't, we don't swerve from it. It's absolute. Our, our philosophies are, are, are absolutes. I'm a purist, or whatever it is. Now some ideas, some philosophies are not popular, so they just never catch on as big religions. Right? If you have a popular philosophy, then you get a big religion. They said this group had, had already existed before John, but, but they get a little boost from John's popularity. He, he started unpopular, but he becomes popular. Now we talk about the Zadokites. We, we mispronounce, we butcher their name in English. They're the Sadducees. Zedukites. Because of John, we have... Sadducees. They already exist, as I said, but they were just a small fraction of people. And they, if you ever read the New Testament, you, you see them, they'll come together as a hatred for Jesus, but outside of that, they're constantly competing. They hate each other. They are, in the New Testament, the party of the priests. Why? Because John was a high priest. And they're connected And we see errors come from a philosophy. This literal interpretation of everything, so literal. So as I talked about last week, that the Pharisees were uh, criticized for their oral tradition. These, these people don't believe in it. They don't hold it. In Acts 23, 8... <clears throat> We see some of the differences. Paul here creates a diversion using and knowing and understanding who they are. He had been a Pharisee. He understands all the differences. And there's Pharisees and Sadducees in the crowd. And he pits them against each other because he knows how much they hate each other. And that he needed that because he was in danger of like getting killed right there on the spot. So he creates a disturbance and makes a fast getaway. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, no angels, no spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of these. Philosophy. No oral tradition. Oral tradition, bad. Oral tradition was right. Pharisees are correct. Sadducees wrong. How did they get there? Because they have a philosophy. I want you to go back. We, we understand this. Excuse me. <clears throat> if you subtract the New Testament, and you're only operating with the Old Testament, and you're operating in the Old Testament of no oral tradition, we're just reading it, and that's that. Read Ecclesiastes and see if you get an afterlife out of it. Well, what about passages that, that talk about the afterlife? Well, the afterlife was a thing in, in, <clears throat> in Hebrew called Sheol. But it meant literally the grave. That's the word, the grave. 
And so every time, oh, my head will go down to the grave. And you're interpreting this literally. This actually, I mean, you kind of need some interpretation to get an afterlife out of it. Now, I don't know how they denied angels because that's in there. I mean, read Daniel. It's in there. Um, Whatever. Maybe they just... One of the things that happens is when, you are, when you're cemented in your position, you say, they believe this, I believe this. We do that all the time. Right? Whatever they're for, I'm against. That happens in philosophies and competing religions. <clears throat> there are purists. They were what we would call conservative. Right? That's the definition. Don't go out on a limb. That's liberal. Liberal is always changing, always looking for new and exciting. Conservatives, whoa, back up. So the Sadducees were the whoa, back up. They were the conservatives. Any philosophy becomes a religion and becomes wrong. And for you and me... It seems obvious that a philosophy says I'm always changing is not a good one. Because even in the outside chance that you come across 100% truth on a subject, you're only going to sit there for five minutes. Which means five minutes later you're going to be wrong. Because you're always changing. So by definition, you can't possibly be right for, for too awful long. But then we go, ah, so this is the good philosophy... The opposite one. And yet we see in the scriptures that no, it's not. Because you just might miss something that you need. Because of a philosophy. And you can be 100% sincere on either side of these philosophies. And you'll be wrong in both. Because that's the nature of having your identity wrapped up in a philosophy. All philosophies have errors and they capture us. What do I mean by capturing us? Colossians 2.8 says this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits in the world, and not according to Christ. Any philosophy you have will capture you and will cement you in an idea that you have to hold. Oh, we have to do this because this is what this group of people is. This is our identity. We always are whatever. And you will be wrong somewhere in your philosophy. Funny thing about purists. You know a purist? I mean, a purist, you will note them most often in sports. I like sports examples because they're usually safe. Being football season, let me use a football analogy. 
They're turning this game into flag football. You ever heard that one? I'm a purist. I want to go back to when they could hit each other. Okay, let's go back to 1905, where 10 people a year died from broken necks. You want to be a purist? Let's be a purist. Well, I don't want to be that pure, right? What we do when we're purists is we go back to a moment, we idealize a moment in our lives where things were perfect. That's what we do. And that's the philosophy. We don't really want to be purists. We just want to go back to a part where I'm, I accepted it. We get captured by, by my interpretation of things and my philosophy. The encouragement here today is obvious. Beware of isms. Isms are that by which we identify ourselves in a philosophy. I don't care what the suffix or prefix is. They're all the same. We, we start looking at, at a philosophy to save the world. God says those are empty. Only Christ saves the world. Capitalism won't save the world. It might make your wallet fatter, but it won't save the world. Socialism ain't definitely going to do it. And communism, and liberalism, and conservatism, and ismism, whatever ism. Won't do it. It's empty. It might have some side benefits here and there. But they don't do it. They cannot save. And the church is buying into isms. And we're allowing economical philosophies and political philosophies to separate us into groups. And Christ is saying, Hello, I'm over here. I've got a message. The gospel of Christ was successful when people lived under totalitarianism. And there's an ism that nobody wants. Because the gospel is above isms. Don't let anyone take you captive through a philosophy. Through an idea that you have to identify as. Because you'll always have to be this. Well, I have to take this view because this is the group I belong to. To get rid of the isms. When you see these isms pop up, analyze it, say, is this something that's really in the scriptures or, or am I finding it there? Because I, I identify, because I go back to a moment in time and, and this is what I idealize. Somebody I love was this. Whatever the reason I've come to it, whatever cemented me there, 
look at John Hyrcanus and understand what that can do when we're sincerely wrong in our isms.